views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the sky. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is November 30th, 2016. Happy birthday to BTRN founder Scotty Reed and the Queen of Spoken Word, Georgia Me. During the broadcast, we'll be joined by our guest out of Colorado, Jimmy Thomas. Jimmy has been involved in the Amendment T efforts and was inspired by BTRN and Scotty Reed. In addition to an interview, he penned a powerful letter to Colorado Public Radio in support of the amendment change. The American Studies Association recently held a panel discussion to assess the 2016 election results. I really want to break down what they talked about as it is shown in their call for submissions on the issues. I might just send them something, even though I don't qualify as a member of the ASA per se, nor as an intellectual, sadly, but today was a day where the ASA pissed off a poor poet pretty badly. Speaking of pissed off, today a North Carolina district attorney announced that Brentley Vinson, the Charlotte McElberg police officer who fatally shot Keith Scott earlier this year in Charlotte, will walk free. If time allows, I want to examine a thesis of the three spheres of slavery by Dr. Kim Roberts. After much thought and many discussions with professionals at all levels, I think I've pinpointed the exact place where cognitive dissonance comes into play for many of our most educated and respected advocates. Further, I found a blog by Clint Richardson from 2010 that is so on point it deserves to be reviewed and discussed, if not by us, then at least by you. He asked the simple question that Brian Stevenson recently told me we should be all asking. Is slavery legal in America? A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, comes courtesy of new abolitionist Yusef Hassan, is Charles Palmer, who enjoyed a Thanksgiving meal with his family for the first time in 18 years after being exonerated on November 23rd, last Wednesday. Our abolitionist in profile is one of 
the only, is the one and only John Brown, and his story will be read from behind prison bars by Mumia Abu-Jamal. We invite you to participate in the conversation, and we'll be repeating the call-in numbers throughout the evening. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty Reed? Happy birthday again, man. Hey, thank you, Max. Uh, how are you tonight? How's the family? Uh, we are <clears throat> running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to handle business here. I'm in Greenville, South Carolina today at my daughter's house, and uh, we uh just been dealing with the issues that she has, of course. Well, of course, uh, send the Black Talk Radio family's love to your daughter as we wish her a speedy recovery. Thank you, brother. Thank you. If, uh, is, uh, you uh, is uh, our brother with us, Johanna, today? Um, no, I don't see Johanna on the board. All right. Man, uh, I had a pissed off day. I got to tell you, I've just been in a, I can't say I've been an emotional wreck, but I've been very much, very sensitive, you know, and I guess it's understandable. And it bleeds into everything I do. You know, I'm just more aware, more sensitive to circumstances. I see deeper than I should be looking and things like that. What do you mean deeper than you should be looking? Well, you know, when people start talking about things, or if I'm in certain circumstances, things will stand out to me. Like when we were at the Cancer Research uh, Institute just yesterday with my daughter, uh, people were sending out prayers about her, of course, like you just did. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, man, this is like a prayer interceptor right in front of this building, which was this big statue of a white Jesus. <laughs> and it's right there in front of the building, this 12-foot statue. And I'm thinking to myself, how can prayers make it to through this thing here, which is a, a, a big idol and a lie? It's just like a person that don't exist. And it's just pretentious and demonic, if you ask me. Idol worship. And I was very sensitive about that. Yeah, idol worship, right there in front of the building. Yeah. So uh, it was pretty, things like that. And also when people start talking about slavery and human trafficking, sometimes they'll, they'll be a little bit off on what's going on, and I find myself a little bit more sensitive to when they are off. Well, I'm that way as an abolitionist. I'm especially sensitive to people in the media. When it comes to the masses, well, I don't expect them to know any more than I knew about modern-day slavery and human trafficking four years ago. I didn't know. And you can't blame people for what they don't know, and that is why you, I, and others launched this this um, this media program to educate the public and make them aware. And but you know, especially when we see, like for example, when we did the review of the thirteenth again, um, great effort, better than anything that has made it to the main, main so-called mainstream the uh, documentary the 13th but as we critique that in the different um, so called quote unquote activists uh, I don't think any of them refer to themselves as abolitionists but they're referred to themselves and society calls them activists and we were just critiquing their words and some of them was using very correct language and they seemed to understand what was going on um, that slavery was never abolished, which was the whole reason for the title, the 13th and the 13th Amendment being the focus of the film and her shine, trying to show an unbroken line from slavery to slavery. Cause I mean, if it's an unbroken line, then, you know, and that's some of the things we were critiquing on when you went to that conference 
and you asked Brian Stevens that question and then he started talking about the legacy of slavery well wait a minute something has to be over with before it can have a legacy you know like like I have to die first before people start talking about black talk radio as the legacy of Scotty Reed you know what I'm saying after I've gone on and passed on from this earth so yeah Max as a person who studies this issue as an abolitionist as a person in media yeah I do those are like my pet peeves especially with people who should know but again I have to remind myself I shouldn't assume that they do but you would still think if somebody reached out to you and said hey I'm doing this documentary called the 13th it's about the 13th amendment which has a slavery exception clause in it you would think they would read up on that and that they would that would be reflected in their interviews uh, with uh, her for the film so I get where you're coming from Max yeah, yeah. I, I'm usually like you sensitive to that, but lately I've been a little oversensitive. You know what I mean? At least it seems to me like it. So well, I'm, you got I'm a lot going on in your it. life, man. So you got that other stuff, you know, that's probably exacerbating, you know, your your feelings right now, which is, should be understandable, man. Your daughter just went through a major surgery, replaced her whole shoulder, uh, dealing with cancer, and, sh- and she's in recovery right now. So. I can understand if you're a little extra sensitive to some of these things. And, and I've noticed the connection and how these systems work because of that, too. Like, you know, the cancer industry is a huge industry, huge global industry, and uh, they really exploit a lot of the victims of cancer. Mm-hmm. Like, my daughter was being courted by the uh, American Cancer Institute uh, like she was an NBA player because she was worth two, three million dollars to them. So they were willing to fly her down to uh, uh, Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia actually, and uh, her along with someone who would stay with her and cover every cost she had while they did whatever it is that they do. And uh, that's pretty amazing. It's not like they were doing it out of the kindness of their heart. There's a paycheck involved. They got a lot of people who are paying for this. They're making money on this. These are our livelihoods that are involved in cures and treatments and it's billions and billions of dollars the same thing applies with this, this prison industry it's extremely you know, exploited I have a question about that you raised and this is totally off the subject of uh, 21st century slavery and human trafficking but you, I mean you did just raise a point I wonder if the Cancer Association all these different organizations that do cancer research or solicit donations for cancer research are they lobbying the United States government to allow uh, the cancer vaccines I think it just uh, treats like uh, cancer of the lungs or something or prevents that but you know Cuba with the passing of Fidel Castro here uh, over last Friday and me just knowing that they had come up with a cancer vaccine with their you know great medical medical um, uh, research that goes on on that island with limited resources that's where one of the areas they they uh, chose to direct their resources in the field of medicine and what have you but I've never heard of them lobbying they could be happening behind the scenes to get these these uh, cancer vaccines produced in Cuba released to the general public so I don't know just a question well, I look at it like the oil industry and like the prison industry, these things that uh, only exist because of a certain uh, particular thing that they're involved with, whether it be oil or cancer or enslavement. Mm-hmm. And without that, they wouldn't exist at all. all right. So uh, 
know, it's very likely that they are lobbying to prevent such things like that. You know, uh, we've been recommended to go to Dr. Sabi out in Honduras, who has uh, found a way to cure cancer. Apparently, cancer can't exist in an alkaline environment. It can only exist in an acidic environment. And uh, he's got a huge track record. Unfortunately, just a couple months ago, he mysteriously died. So, oh, Dr. Uh, Sabi. You know, just that, for example. Right, Dr. Sabi. And there was another one that came out where a woman developed a laser technology that could uh, remove cancer tumors without any invasive surgery completely. And uh, they, she was told recently that uh, nobody's going to buy it if it's not in pill form. I mean, this is the type of things that you've got to deal with. So if there's an answer, there's somebody fighting to keep that answer out of the picture. Just you like know, you know, that's a good segue, as I do believe we have our guest on the line, Mr. Thomas from Colorado. As I have read, and it'll be good to get his report being there on the ground in Colorado, but I had read that there was opposition to Amendment T. I mean, who in their right mind would be against removing an exception for slavery in their state constitution? And so, you know, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that um, it actually got put on the ballot and put to a vote. Not the outcome I hope for, but hopefully that that will be reintroduced at a certain date. But um, I do want to welcome on to the program, uh, Mr. Thomas, and uh, also we got a light, uh, Johanna and Elia joining us, uh, uh, the other co-hosts of New Abolitionist Radio. And uh, do, let me check real quick. Uh, Three oh three, is this Mr. Thomas? This is Jimmy Thomas. Hi, Scotty. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, let me welcome. Let me welcome in also our our co-host because he may have some questions as well. Uh, Johanna, let's check your audio. Give us a mic check and uh, um, hello from you to the listening audience. Peace, peace. What's going on, fellas? I've been here. I can hear everything y'all were saying. We we could probably go ahead with the guest though. I don't have anything to add to what you're talking about. Okay. All right, so um, the reason I invited Mr. Thomas on to the line, he sent me a, a, a email over the Thanksgiving um, um, uh, period and said that he was writing to thank me for inspiring him with my passion about the 13th Amendment, but he was reporting bad news from Colorado, an amendment to remove the same exception clause from our state constitution barely failed and more work to do there. Um, and uh, Mr. Thomas, um, thank you for getting involved in the issue to even, you know, put that to the voters there in Colorado. I think that may have been a historic um, achievement in itself, guys. What What do you think? I remember we talked about the first time, what was that, Reverend uh, uh, Jabu might have been the first open yeah, abolitionist candidate to run for Congress. And then that was followed up by the uh, person from South Carolina. And so I would say that this amendment, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Who was he with? The Green Party out of South Carolina? I'm not sure, but he ran as an abolitionist. No, he ran as a Democrat. Uh, You're talking about Dimitri Cherney, who ran out of Charleston, South Carolina, on an abolitionist platform and was an advocate for the removal of the exception clause from the uh, 13th Amendment. Now, not in every state, but in quite a few states, voters can gather signatures 
to put a question on the ballot um, or initiative, if you will, a ballot initiative, as we've seen in not just California, but a couple of other states, there was um, the ballot initiative to legalize cannabis recreationally or either medicinally. And, And it failed in a couple of states, but I think it won in the majority of the states. So in certain states, voters... Um, activists, political activists, if you will, I think would be a correct term to use, can put such things on in, um, again, certain states put that to the vote. And in Colorado, Amendment T. Uh, Colorado, like many other states that we have highlighted on um, New Abolitionist Radio over the years, we did uh, one segment where we looked at every state constitution and, and maybe what, 90% guys? Ninety percent. We saw the exception clause. More like about twenty, twenty-six or twenty-seven. I think it was that States. had their own individual exception clause in their state constitution. Uh-huh. The rest of them uh, just referred to the Thirteenth Amendment. Okay. All right. So, um, Mr. Thomas, can you tell us what you know about the efforts to even get that on the ballot in Colorado? Yeah, a little bit. My contribution, by the way, is very modest. I'm not an organizer for this, but I've been following it closely because, like I wrote to you, Scotty, uh, when I started listening to Black Talk Radio and hearing you rant about the 13th Amendment, I got interested in it. So as soon as I saw Amendment T appear here on the ballot in Colorado, I wrote to you to say, hey, wow, this is uh, some exciting progress. But really, I... Most of the credit, I think, should go to Will Dickerson, and there's a Denver nonprofit organization called Together Colorado. That's the group here in Colorado that worked hardest. Will Dickerson was the guy that got interviewed by Colorado Public Radio after the the ballot initiative failed, and uh, and I had got interested because I was listening to Colorado Matters, which is one of those segments on Colorado Public Radio. They were inviting letters about Amendment T, so. I wrote a letter, and uh, and they asked me to record it. It didn't go on the air after all, but, you know, it was just kind of a small effort. But um, but here's the thing that's interesting to me. This initiative was not put on after a lot of signature gathering, but after a um, some kind of an act in the legislature. And the good news, the positive news out of this, is that the Colorado Senate and the legislature both unanimously both parties unanimously agreed to put this on the ballot to the voters which is like a huge vote of support for removing the amendment clause across you know a bipartisan effort uh and then the voters messed it up so so here we stand now another bit of optimistic news is that the legislator who put this on the ballot last time plans to put it on the ballot again in a year or two, they plan to address problems with the language. There's a, a kind of a consensus that the language of the ballot initiative was confusing. People were calling Will Dickerson, the organizer, saying, I don't want this. Should I be voting yes or no? And he would have to say, you you got to vote yes to say no to slavery. Yes, you want no slavery. And that that might have been a problem, although it's kind of normal to say yes to amend the Constitution, but there's a lot of concern about making the language clearer, making it clearer to people that what they're voting for is removing 
slavery, period, with no exceptions. Um, so anyway, was, that's what's coming up. I was I was very uh, concerned with that, and I had heard stories that there was a uh, narrative being put out to the voters that what they were voting for was to free all the prisoners, which is what led many to say no. They didn't want to free all the prisoners, particularly in a place like Colorado where you have these huge maximum security prisons, one of the largest, uh, I believe, yeah. the largest collection of maximum security prisons in the world and counties that function completely off uh, the prison industry where all the people employed and uh, you know they, they, the economy revolves around their prisons there so I would guess that would scare people and I wonder where such rumors came from yeah you know I didn't pick up on that narrative I've read a lot of articles the Denver Post and uh, Colorado Public Radio just tracking this from a few angles I don't. I didn't notice that that narrative. The narrative that seemed to get more attention was, and this was one that was actually in the blue book. Here in Colorado, the, someone publishes a blue book. I don't know if it's the League of Women Voters or who, but but it gives us guidance on all the candidates. It lists pros and cons, and so a voter to inform themselves is going to read the blue book. And and in that blue book on Amendment T, the strongest argument against T was that it might impede the opportunity to give uh, convicts a choice between community service and prison and the, the possibility of messing up community service as an option for punishment for a crime was something that I think thinking people might have might have glommed onto. Now when Will Dickerson was interviewed on CPR, he said that was um, bogus because or outright lie who knows what it was but the point is because a person in the system can choose between community service and imprisonment and when they're in prison they can choose between a prison job and not working at all that aspect of choice is what makes it not be involuntary servitude anyway that was kind of the, the arguments against it that even made me stop and say Hmm, maybe I should think about that. But then finally I just got around to saying, no, no, that, that's just nuts. But, but it has caused some people, apparently enough people, to uh, vote against it. Plus, really, you know, in this election, how many, how many thoughtless people riding on the coattails of the president-elect got in and just voted no on anything that resembled progress? And there's nothing in the press about that. That's my humble personal opinion. But, but since nobody, we don't have exit polls. I haven't read anything in local press here. Exit polls. Why did you or did you not vote for Amendment T? There's a few random comments. There's an interesting letter that showed up in the Denver Post that was um, a, kind of a funny thing. You might want to read about that or hear about it. But, but a thoughtful argument for why to keep it there was as a like a reminder of the evils of slavery, but you don't need the exception clause to do that. The the statement that slavery shall be illegal, period, is all we need in the Constitution as a reminder of something that was exactly. a crime against nature. Uh, we don't need the exception saw, clause. <laughs> I saw a few articles, and the only argument I saw coming out of the uh, 
prison industry or rather from the government was where they were using the argument of custodial care, uh, that it was necessary for them to take custodial care once a person is a prisoner. Otherwise, uh, I, well, they didn't really give an otherwise, but I, I took the otherwise in my own head to the, where it was uh, logically going, saying that we can't make them do certain things if they have full rights as a citizen. If you have free speech, how can I tell you to shut up? If you uh, want to vote from inside prison, how can I tell you not to? So they were using this as a sort of an argument of custodial care. And I've heard that before from other people like uh, Ken Williams, uh, the former officer out of uh, San Francisco who used that argument with us as well. And I just think that argument is garbage. And as it regards mm. to uh, the employment inside the prisons, well, we all know that when you're making 11 cents an hour and the only only income you have is that 11 cents an hour or 50 cents an hour to buy socks and uh, things that you need, toothpaste or whatever it is, people will fight and kill over that type of money, <laughs> 11 cents an hour, because it's the only income. So to say that they're not forced is kind of obscuring the truth of it all. How else are you going to supply your own needs? How else are you going to provide for yourself except for that job that yeah. we're offering you to do? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a muddy, confusing topic. Right. And, I, and like Scotty said from the very beginning, why would anybody in their right mind want to keep this type of draconic, demonic language in their most sacred of documents. When you, if you're not practicing slavery, then what do you need it for? And yeah. that's where that custodial care argument came out. We were hoping, oh, I just knew Colorado was going to do it, because Colorado is one of the most progressive states in the nation. And after at least four different tries in other states, we were like, yeah, Colorado's going to do this. And then when it oh, came back, so close. The so close. that was suspect to me right there. That was very suspect to me. How could it be so close like that, really, without anybody providing a counter-argument? Yeah. That's I don't know. Me <laughs> Do you guys use electronic ballots? Is that what you're uh, using out there? We do. Um, what, As I learn about ballots, Colorado's probably more enlightened than most. We have mail-in ballots. Anybody can do mail-in ballots. So the the barriers to to voting are very low. You can belong to either party during the primaries and declare which party you're in at the last minute. So the opportunity to enfranchise independents is there. They can participate in Democrat or Republican primaries at the last minute. Just say, I've always been an independent, but today I'm a Democrat. Because today, the Democrat primary matters. And next week, next time I'll be a Republican. But it's... um. But it is, it's the kind of ballots where you fill in circles. So it's a hard copy, the original, in case you do need to do a recount. And that original gets read by computer so it can be tallied quickly. So it seems like, to me as a voter, of, and I've lived in a few states, the best of both worlds in terms of technology, accessibility. There's not a sense that voters are being excluded, like in some states these days. And... Um, you know, I don't know. Does that answer your question? I mean, well, 
I heard, well, it, I guess it's no sense of just um, rehashing it and asking you questions you possibly can't know uh, at this point. Uh, we do have a similar voting system here in North Carolina, exactly how you describe, which um, which uh, I was a victim of electronic voting uh, when they were still using those, but I don't think that's a, that's not an issue here. But I want to ask you a, per, a couple of personal questions, if I may, Mr. Thomas. Yeah, sure. Um, oh, please call me Jimmy. <laughs> okay, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, do you consider yourself an abolitionist? Well, I wouldn't have said that before, but you said if I'm doing anything active in this regard, then I get to call myself an abolitionist. I'd be proud to say that. I, I never really used the word before, but I, I would be proud to accept that if you'll call well, me Well, I think, I, I think that in some people's mind that the bar is is really high or or something you got to be doing x y z to be considered an abolitionist but for my personal i could just speak for myself my personal criteria criteria is one you recognize that slavery was not abolished by the 13th amendment that that exception clause is a problem and that you do anything anything within your power um, to reverse that situation, to work towards abolishing slavery. And, and then the other thing is just telling other people, you know, uh, um, that's how most movements grow, I think, is by word of mouth, uh, hearing something from their neighbors, from a family member. So, I mean, have you done any of those things? Um, I I do that. I've mentioned it to people now and then. It, uh, it struck me when I first heard you starting to talk about it. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I have, I just not as a super activist. It was really once Amendment T got on that I took a couple of steps. This is like a third step on a thousand mile journey. And now that I recognize there's more work to do, I'm kind of interested in getting more involved in it. So we'll see where it goes. But, you know, I, I, I live in a, a, a very white state. I'm in a white bubble in a red county in a corner of a very white state. So it's, uh, and I don't know, that doesn't really matter much, but but I I agree with you, every little bit helps. And every time you know, last last show when Max talked about asking a policeman, Do you know about the thirteenth amendment? And he said, No, do you know it's your responsibility to uphold the thirteenth amendment? That's it's it's just a small step but but it's important and I, I get that that's important now, so I'm I'm on board with sharing this news and well, let me ask you another question. Um, you said that when you were first confronted with the information about in the context of it not abolishing slavery counter to probably everything you heard in school, saw on, on uh, television or heard other people talk about it in past tense. How how did you accept that? What was the process? I mean, did you go read the 13th Amendment again for, for yourself after you heard us talking about it here on Black Talk Radio Network. What was that process to make you vote yes to remove the slavery exception clause in the Colorado Constitution? What was that process for you? The process was listening to you, Scotty, on the radio and <laughs> memorizing the 13th Amendment because you speak it. I don't know, you used to. And I haven't heard the show lately, honestly. I kind of maxed out on a lot of my podcasts so um so it, more of your shows like a year or two ago and i just kind of picked up on that and got completely sensitized to 
the 13th Amendment. Did, was there any <laughs> kind of shock or disbelief that you had not recognized this before? Because, again, as I readily admit, I only became aware four years ago. And I, yeah, I became yeah. angry. <laughs> We're fellow travelers on this discovery. I, You know, it was, I don't know if it was shocking or surprising so much as a, appalling and I don't know. There's there's so much. There's so much slavery and racism that's just like entrenched in everything of the, of this country. I I guess I'm not surprised that it's still there in the Constitution in a form that is in fact legal slavery. It's it's a it's a surprise, but but then it's not. You know, when when you right. talk about systemic racism and uh, just just the whole and the anger that we've got going on, especially this year, that like riles people up even more so. Yeah, it's um, it's not surprising. Yeah, they're starting to see a lot of documents. They're seeing a lot of truths these days. Uh, things that words that they weren't using before, phrases that they weren't using before, they were actually oh, in denial God. of, have become commonplace, like white supremacy and institutional racism. Just a couple of years ago, they were talking about a post-racial society. So they missed the mark so badly, and uh, I'm not so sure they're ever going to catch up in Main Street. Yeah, One yeah of the things I know. I was, I was concerned with, and I asked you about electronic voting specifically for this reason, is because back in 2006, Tom Feeney, who was the Speaker of the House in Florida, and one also ranked as one of the 20 most corrupt members of Congress in a report by the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, had uh, paid a programmer to develop a program that would make the voting polls come out 49, 51, in any direction you want to. And the uh, programmer testified, and his name was Cliff Curtis, and he testified in front of Congress in Florida about this program he created on behalf of the Speaker of the House. Uh, it was a very amazing testimony, and the video is available for you now on New Abolitionist Radio. Be able to see with your own eyes. But ever since I saw that video, I've always, you know, wondered if it's still being used. And when I hear the words "49 to 51," particularly on a subject where there really is no argument against it, that made me think that maybe this is a possibility that the powers that have so much money, and we're talking about the prison industry, that they can lobby Congress spending as much as $50 million in just a few short years well, Max, just on Congress alone Max, can when, manage things like this. When you say there's no argument against it, you mean no logical argument against it or no moral argument opposing the abolition of slavery. But they'll come up with stuff all day long and argue with you all day long. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, Jimmy, didn't, wasn't there some question about, oh, we wouldn't be able to make people do community service. This will outlaw community service if we remove that. Isn't that an argument you heard there? That was one that was in the blue book. It was printed as arguments against this amendment. The blue book. Wow. Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. So the whole reason that they need an exception clause in their arguments is that they want people to do community service, and you can't force them to do it unless you call them a slave. 
I guess. And and really, I can't speak to the the program or the corruption of the counting machines. I don't know anything about that. Well, I and I haven't read anything about that suspicion. Although although it's a fair suspicion. I mean, from no opposition, from late breaking opposition, this mm-hmm. might be one to look into like that. But. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't. Johanna, did you want to jump in here uh, before we wrap up our interview with Jimmy and get to the rest of our segments? No, sir. All right. Okay. Well, I have one more question, if you don't mind. No, Um, sir. You said that you've been made aware that in the next year or two, this will be resubmitted uh, as another movement to take that exception clause out. Is that correct? Yeah, I just read that in the Denver Post, and Representative Joe Von Melton, Democrat from Aurora, who co-sponsored the measure, told the Denver Post that he would look to, look to reintroduce the measure with simpler language within the next two years. I have I have okay. one question to that. Why don't they just, it, you mentioned earlier, unanimous support or bipartisan support. Um, as far as it being unanimous, I mean, were there any nays, you know, in the Senate, in the House of Colorado? But you mentioned it was bipartisan support enough to get it put out there. And it wasn't like you pointed out voters or activists who gathered signatures to get this on the ballot. This was the Colorado legislature. So what I'm saying is why don't they just pass a law or amendment? I mean, or, or is there something preventing that and this is the only way they can amend the constitution or can they not just just uh you know like in north carolina i know you do have to have like a constitutional convention or something like that so maybe i, I and i'm just spitballing here maybe they have identified this is the easiest path or the most likely path yeah. to get it passed i don't know I, I don't know um and and again let me just quote from a denver post article Amendment T, which was referred to the ballot by a unanimous vote of both legislative chambers, would have eliminated an 1876 reference, blah, blah, blah. But but why they didn't just amend it as the legislature, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how that works. They might have just said, yeah, let's ask the voters. We can all agree to ask the voters. Maybe that's what made it easy, unanimous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, put it to the voters, uh, shirk the responsibility instead of being on the record as voting for or against slavery. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I yeah, see what's yeah. going Good on news there. Is it was a unanimous vote uh, as far as the legislators were concerned yeah. that they wanted to put it on the ballot. So yeah. that's been it's that worth considering. That, yeah, right. That is worth considering unanimously. So we really only have been trying at this level of effort now for about the past four or five years to get these exception clause taken out, not only of the federal but the state. And we've had some failures, but we can't succeed unless we get some failures under our belt. It's got to keep moving forward. That's why I asked if they were going to repeat the process again in a year or two. And if they do, and if you're still involved, please keep us informed and maybe get us uh, involved as well because we can provide information and facts that may not be readily available or even willingly shared by those involved. Right, and we can make some specific propaganda and target voters in Colorado on social media. Okay. 
Will do. Well, Jimmy, I want to thank you uh, for reaching out and being a longtime listener and supporter of our network and uh, for becoming an abolitionist and being on this journey with me. And and did you have anything in closing you would like to leave with the listeners? And again, thank you again. Uh, no, just um, keep on the good work you're doing. And uh, thank you for inviting me. It's, again, it's such a small part compared to real work that other people have been doing. I hate to take much credit at all, but it's a small step. So I'm with you guys. All right. Thank you, brother. Welcome to the abolitionist movement. Peace. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Good night, Jimmy. Good night. Okay, guys, we're like over uh, for a break. I didn't want to break in with a with a guest and interrupt, uh, but um, I, I'm I'm looking at this as a glass half full, where the glass was empty before situation, huh? What about you all? Right. Definitely, it was out there. Like you said, it was unanimously put on, put out as legislation. So it's not like it was a fight within the state. Comparatively, uh, what we saw go on last year, say in Florida, for example where we had the state Senate uh, strong for, well, reform, of course, and making changes to a state that it had over 250 deaths in custody of its prisons and uh, being able to address the slavery aspect of it, the disfranchisement, uh, having George Malincrot on the show. I mean, the different things that we saw go on in that state, and the Senate was all for it, but when it got to the House, what, what was proposed was struck down, and the House uh, extended some of the the already existing legislations and as far as like uh, multipliers and man mandatory minimums and just kind of strengthened, you know, the, the state, the state's approach as it's already been in existence. So I think that's like a contrast, you know, where we were working just as hard to get change and abolition in place. And you saw what Florida did. So, I mean, I, I'm like you, I see it as a glass half full type situation. You got to keep pushing. I wish that they would have sought our counsel in this, considering yeah. our position, how long we've held it, because we could have easily countered any argument that they had. For instance, the custodial care argument is easily countered by pointing out that there is a state in this country that does not have a caveat in its, in its uh, abolition of slavery, and that is Rhode Island. No, Rhode Island that's North Carolina, too. Law. North Carolina has abolished slavery. They have a caveat well, have for involuntary servitude. Right. But Rhode Island doesn't even have that. There is no language at all for slavery or, or uh, indebted servitude in their constitution. And they still use uh, their prison labor for community uh, work. Well, then perhaps people in that state need to start uh, asking questions and demanding that they adhere to the Constitution and stop practicing slavery because it's not going to end itself. It's going to take efforts like the grassroots activists up there in Colorado. Um, just It's going to take people to do it. It's not going to get done it itself. So that's going to take people in that state to recognize what's going on, look at the Constitution, and, and use those constitutional arguments. You know, just like here in North Carolina. Um, I'm sorry, just like here in North Carolina. Now, it says that slavery has been abolished, period. That's what it says. No exception. 
But then it says involuntary servitude shall be abolished except for punishment for crime. So how would I possibly legally attack that? Because they're saying, hey, this isn't slavery. Now, we can make these people work, but uh, um, uh, we have an exception for involuntary servitude. So if you commit a crime, we can make you work. It's going to be no sitting around in prison watching TV or playing games or reading books or any of that kind of stuff. You are going to work on the turkey farms, on the railroad, wherever we send you and hire you out to work. Well, to attack that legally here in North Carolina, okay, I might would say, Okay, fine. You can make them work. The Constitution says you can make them work. But in order, though, for you to be in compliance with the Constitution and its abolishment of slavery, you have to pay them the state minimum wage. So it, it is up for the, the the people in wherever they are to examine these issues and, and push them. And by, by the way, we... I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to mention. Let's uh, just keep going straight through to the top of the hour. That's when we'll take a station ID. I think that there is no difference between involuntary servitude and slavery. It's just uh, slavery by another name, and we've had so much of that slavery by another name. So many different names to slavery. If you're right. forcing someone to do free labor, there is no other word for it except you're enslaving them. But again, I'm well, talking Max, legally that? speaking, though. Yeah, we can go in there and make that argument, but you know, it may or may not fit. It may or may not be successful. But I'm talking about using their words and their laws and their language against them. We know that we know the trickery of we know involuntary servitude is the same thing as slavery. But since they want to make that distinction, well, what is the distinction then? Well, it has to be that in order for a person not to be a slave, you can't be, and it's just involuntary servitude, then you have to pay them. You have to pay them whatever the state minimum wage. You cannot pay them slave wages or else it's slavery. So that's what I'm talking about, Max. I recognize right. the deception in the language, but I'm thinking about if we're going to approach this through a court, that's the that's the argument I would make. I think we need to. So you, I think it's to the point. Then what, what you're saying with that, Scotty? Right. Um, are y'all suggesting then it's to the point that the legislation that was proposed, say in Colorado, and passed unanimously? Uh, you know, and, and got on the ballot. So we're seeing an issue where, from a, a, a codification standpoint, uh, what we're saying and what they were saying is not a was not an issue. We're looking at an, an informational standpoint where, even as the guest was pointing out, that even with information that he came to this with, he still had a hesitation about. Well, maybe they aren't voluntarily okay. Well, maybe that is vol. Okay, well, I don't know. And then he said he had to just push through with common sense. So, I mean, I'm I'm with Max on that as far as if we can get ourselves get the abolitionists moving in a position of 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 course what we do, you know, spreading the propaganda, uh, getting the information to as many people as possible. I mean, honestly, I feel like what we've seen in the last few years with let's say Black Lives Matter being out there in the forefront. That is a blanket name for all protests basically. That is a blanket message that we're trying to bring all the outlying groups to the center 
and make sure everybody gets civil rights and gets access to human rights and everybody gets recognized the lgbt the trans people the the whoever this and that you know so that's what black lives matter says but the larger narrative surrounding them and obviously the conservatives fox news but even you know msnbc these kind of people quote them as being uh anti you know well obviously anti-trump or anti-law and order or cops should be killed or just all these different crazy things but the point i'm trying to make is that they get enough publicity that at least they're being misinterpreted abolitionism is so clear-cut and specific it's not a matter of saying well we just think black lives matter it's not a matter of somebody being able to misquote you and say oh well we don't even like the police well we think it's no you can't miss you can't misunderstand what we're saying we are saying we are for modern slavery abolition well, what do you mean slavery? I'm glad you asked. And it keeps on going from there. So I, I got to stick with like kind of what, what Max is saying. I mean, any point they could have brought up, obviously we could have rebutted it. Anything that, that they need to, to have put out there as far as the information about the truth of the situation, the in-depth study of it all, for all of these years that we've all done, all we really need to do is just continue to get the word out. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, think we got I, a I agree, uh, Johanan, but I don't want to assume that they didn't have people who was countering it with the correct information. I wasn't there. I don't know. So I don't want to assume that. But let me say this, though. You can prevent people with, you can present people with all the logical information in the world on why they should end slavery, and they going to vote the way they want to, regardless of that information. So that has to be acknowledged. And I think our, our right. guest speaker, Jimmy, kind of hinted at that. If these were right. people who were you know, coming out for the first time to vote cause of Donald Trump and, and what he represents. And and right. so, oh, we, yeah, we want to keep slavery in place. Let's remind these niggas, you know, of their place. So who knows, man? Well, our fight is a wider, it's a wider battle. And, and I mean, that's, that's useful for us as well to know what is the actual battlefield. Because if we come into it and we're the only group that is informed on just how far these people will go to maintain white supremacy, white domination and control of resources, human resources on through to everything in the planet and all the things that we know comes as a result of maintaining a position of slavery and enslaving people with the threat of slavery and but the legality of slavery. All of this is what we know, but these other groups that either choose not to align or think their cause is more important or do whatever they do while they don't come in with us and don't talk about what we're talking about. I don't know that these people recognize how wide the battlefield really is. So when they go out here and do what they're doing, they're very narrow. They got a very narrow focus. And, and so like w with what you're saying, when the caller, uh, when the guest spoke specifically to racism, ultimately people feigning ignorance white privilege of ignorance I didn't know this was a problem all I know is I'm not going for any kind of reform or any kind of changes I got the guy I want and he's going to kick these people out and he's going to be for law and order and everything's going to get better if we just do it this way we don't want to hear any of you saying it's just going to get more criminals on the street and going to keep the bad you know all this kind of crazy thinking so if we keep the truth right at the edge of what we're doing so people that are associated with us and know what we're doing know that the battle is that immediate. It's not some conceptual 
argument of, well, if we could just get more trans, uh, transsexual prisoners to uh, males that get in, put in with other males, if we, I mean, these kind of crazy arguments that, yeah, sure, that person's got a problem and those people have issues, but if we could stop slavery, all of them would be less likely to be engaged in the situations they're in versus just taking right. these narrow arguments. So I, I appreciate that he did say that because it is a red state issue. It is an issue of him being informed, but still I felt from what he said, he, he was saying, he was admitting that he's informed, but he was still somewhat compelled by, for lack of a, a more friendly term, his white privilege of saying, eh, this is something I ain't really sure if I want to, but I do know it's wrong. So let me just go on and, you know, do the right thing. He was a rare person that would be able to do that. But if we could get more people to admit it, even the liberals that call themselves aligning with us, the people that have been out here, the Democrats that have been a part of building the prison state to that align with us. So they're saying, looking out for us, all these Hillary supporters, if we could get them to see the same thing within their own selves, hey, man, you say you love us, you want to be a part of us, but just understand, this is where the battle is really at. It really is a black and white issue. It really is a slavery issue. And if you can't, as a liberal ally, say, I don't know if I want to go that far, then we don't need you. I'd rather have that out in the open. I think one of the biggest things we can do to make a difference is to continue to strive to get the abolitionist perspective involved in the conversation. Uh, for instance, the Gilder, Gilder Lehman Center's 18th Annual International Conference, Slavery and Global, Global Public History, New Challenges, uh, is airing live on a live stream in Providence at Brown University starting tomorrow, uh, from the 1st through the 3rd. And I was reading through the documents of what they're going to be talking about, and nowhere in there did I see any perspective that slavery has uh, continued on. Again, literally using the words, the legacy of slavery, again. And even from the experts. So there's no abolitionist voice being represented there. And I'm very proud of the fact that I've helped lead the way in making that happen, uh, being keynote speaker at Human Rights uh, conventions and giving workshops at different organizations and things like that, as well as uh, Muhaddin D. Baha, like he did on CNN, as we saw before, we're getting this perspective into the conversation. Because as it stands right now, you have people organizing like they did just recently in Newark on the state of the Black Union, and nobody was there representing the abolitionist movement. So nobody there was hearing anything about slavery and human trafficking. All they were getting was reform. So we've got to give that other option, and that is up to us as individuals to interject that argument in there and demand to I, be a part of these conversations. I'm sorry, Max. Um, um, one of our listeners, she might be listening now, uh, goes by New Jersey Girl, she attended that conference. She part of the POP organization, People Organized for Progress, I think is the name of it. And she had mentioned when she had called into the program that she was going to say something to some of the intent attendees and presenters there. Um, another person who was a presenter there, but I didn't have an opportunity to talk to her before she went on, and I don't know if she brought it up or not, but I do know that she knows about the 13th Amendment 
and that's Desiree. I don't want to mess up her name. She's hey, she's from Haiti. She's actually a Haiti priestess, voodoo priestess, or or whatever it is that she practices. But she also has participated in a number of these human rights conferences, um, you know, held in association with the United Nations and whatnot. So she is supposed to actually, from what I heard from the guys on Race Treaty, be one of the rotating hosts on that program here on Black Talk Radio Network. But um, um, I'm definitely going to speak to some of the people that were presenters because they actually, uh, the people who organized it, took out an ad with our station to promote that conference. And I was trying to get people on before, but just couldn't make it happen. Um, other stuff I care not to get into, but, um, I did hear from one of the organizers and she's going to try to, uh, set me up with some people on that. And I'm going to bring it up. I'm definitely going to bring it up. Um, same thing with these conferences on reparations. That's again, you're talking in legacy language. You ain't talking about like it's still happening. You know, uh, uh, my rep, my, my little brother who spent 10 years a slave on the wrongful conviction is old reparations for what happened to him. You know, however long it was since he was in prison, he's been out for a while now, but he's more old reparations for that than, you know, the enslavement of people generations ago. So, uh, so I just want to interject that, man. I am um, uh, reaching out to some of those people. Good. I, I watched the live stream, a great majority of that conference, and I didn't see anybody speaking of that in any large detail, just in references, and nobody came out and said that I could see that it was slavery. They may have said it, but I missed it. Yeah, that is All a I challenge in the black community. I, I admit that. That's a challenge. That's why I saw the need and reached out to you for this program. It's because nobody's talking. I don't hear Al Sharpton bringing it up or the National Action Network. I don't see the NAACP pointing out the exception clause in any state. Do I should have asked the uh, caller. I mean, our guests. Uh, did, I'm, I think there's an NAACP in every state. Where were they on pushing this issue? Did they send out a blast to all their members in Colorado? to get them to vote yes to remove the exception clause so that is a problem among us the um let's just for lack of a better word among these black intellectuals who are who are working on the problem of racism and and, and trying to address these systemic problems is they are, are still after all these years are still slow to acknowledge exactly what you're talking about that the main problem is slavery you know, we can argue with people, we can have a debate, not argue, debate with people. What is the problem exactly? Is it racism or is it slavery? I tend to say it's slavery. I think I got a better chance of stopping slavery than I do of changing what's in somebody's heart and getting them to stop mistreating people. And so when we're talking about racism, that covers, you know, whether you're talking about institutional racism, which that is slavery. Y'all, that's all slavery. Okay. The slave codes where it starts stripping black people of their rights and made it race based slavery. Okay. So, so, um, we do, we got a lot of work to do in making some inroads in some of these established organizations where it seems slavery isn't on their radar. And I kind of blame Michelle Alexander's book for that. 
calling it mass incarceration instead of exactly what it is, slavery. Man, Michelle Alexander and probably 25 other, uh, I was going to say Michelle Alexander, probably 25 other authors uh, um, and academics that I could think of off the top of my head. I mean, I I just saw a um, a post today that Max shared as well from uh, ASA. What was that for? The American Society of Academics that was, you know, read off their list of all the things that they're going to talk about. Yeah, and I saw several of those, uh, uh, several of the people that shared that and liked it and, you know, were obviously members of this society and group or whatever, and I know their books. Some of them I've purchased and studied through. Uh, Most of them are Facebook friends for years now, and I've, you know, obviously been trying to communicate with, you know, greater or lesser success uh, over the years and all of that. And to see that agenda, and I guess when we come back from the break, we can maybe even break that down and just, you know, give people an idea of what we're dealing with. When you say Michelle Alexander, I say there's room for, there's room for 50 to 100 different people that we all know collectively to all be put on front street. And I'm content to use the, the tiny pulpit that I have, you know, whether it be social media or even the, the amplifier that you afford me, Scotty, of Black Talk Radio Network to do new abolitionist radio every week to to you know just rain fire on these people's heads because you're in the way if you're not going to do this work if you're going to write books and put slavery in the title if you're going to talk about this issue if you're going to call yourself a reformer a changed person if you're going to make a a career out of this if you're going to solicit the donations if you're going to be sitting on the panels if you're going to be the president's appointee do all these things you want to do to be in the way and number one nothing changes and number two, you never talk about slavery. Number three, everything you go to, they talk about everything but slavery. And you're not the person that gets kicked off the panel because you demand that they talk about slavery. Damn it, you wrote a book. How could you not have them where they boot you off the stage? Because they, I mean, it's just, I don't see people acting like they give a damn. And this is the third month of a national prison strike that's been going on. How could this not be on the presidential agenda? How could this not be on these continuing panels agendas as we're trying to figure out what to do in this new coming administration? It's just, it's shameful. Well, we're coming up into our break. I just want to say before the break that starting tomorrow, the uh, conference with Yale and Brown University is given the opportunity for Q&A, or if the students themselves are allowed to speak, those people in attendance may be shocked at what they hear. I've spent the last 10 years working out of Providence, and there are a lot of abolitionists, modern-day abolitionists in Providence, including in Brown University, where I've given speeches at their person. So they may be shocked at what they may hear. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back after these things. and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. If you have a question or comment that you would like to share on New Abolitionist Radio tonight, give us a call at 866-510-9025. That's 866-510-9025. Hit star, star, to unmute yourself and we'll see you on the board and call your name and or your um, area code 
and you can go ahead with your question or comment. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, broadcasting every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we were making references to a letter that was going out from Jenny Kelly. Uh, that was what Johanan was just talking about, and the American Studies Association. And I got to say, this letter pissed me off to no end. And it, 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 one of the things that bothered me the most about it is the confirmation of a theory that I've been following of my own uh, for some years now and testing it by going from city to city to city, wherever I'm at, and simply looking at their local free newspaper to see uh, what their local free newspapers say about the black community and what black images I see in their local free newspapers. And so often I find nothing. No black faces, no black stories. It's as if a black community does not exist in their cities. That's the way they treat it. And I call that racism by omission. Oh, and I man. saw this example here. Yes. Uh, we do have a call, yeah. man. I, I, they've been hanging on for quite some time. Do you want to take it before or after you do this segment? Let's go ahead and take it before, because when I get in, we get into breaking this down, it may take us a while. So let's let's go ahead and take our caller. Caller, you're on air with New Abolitionist Radio. State your name and question or comment. Yeah, we got somebody from area code 757. Did you have a question or comment? Yes, Scotty, this is Otis, Otis Griffin. I tag y'all all the time. I'm up here in Yorktown, Virginia. Hey, greeting, Otis. Good to speak with you. Peace, Otis, brother, brother. I haven't talked to you in a couple of years, but I just was going to tag you. I listened because I had been following Colorado with the Blue Book. Scotty hit it when he said that uh, part of why Colorado and the people from the Blue Book went against that is because they claim if they were to ban it, it would mean that people who refused to take community service could not be compelled to do it. I started to read through it, but what I did is went on and tagged it in a couple of your posts on Black Talk Radio and in uh, Political Prisoner. But what I was going to say to you is, uh, y'all have really hit on it because the other research is showing the misnomer about community services, there's really no service to the community. The service is usually to a government-sanctioned private entity that makes money off either monitoring to you or putting you to work. There's no such thing as service to the community. That name in itself is just another form of committing you to service at a cheap price. Right, right, yeah. You're not doing service to the community by working for Whole Foods or Victoria's That's Secret or AT&T. That is not service to the community. And what, what I'm saying to you is the same when you... Uh, get caught up into pre-sentence agreeing to do community service without, quote, going to jail, you still usually end up working for an entity that has nothing to do with the government in most states. And that, that's part of what Colorado, and when you, if you start tracking the money, you usually find out it's because the people that are doing some kind of probation usually have to end up with some kind of digital collar or something that they pay into. So it's still about extracting money from you. 
Right. So what what I see it is is that some people rightly see that if that exception clause is removed, that there will be legal grounds for people to start suing us, possibly on RICO charges for practicing slavery. All of this, all of this free slave labor in its various forms would come to a halt. So we don't even want to open. We don't even want to put a crack in the door. So we must defeat this because who knows? It might be the key to unraveling the entire system of slavery that we've been running for so so long. You're, you're right, Scotty. The exact, Gazette, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs right quick for you. In a time where there are many tensions in race relations, it's symbolically important that Nathan Wood, Woodliff Stanley, executive rec- director of the ACLU in Colorado, I'd be very shocked and disappointed if the people voted to keep slavery in our Constitution. Then what happened, that's one of the advocates now. Sierra Club advocated for it, ACL, AFL-CIO, American Civil Liberties, League of Women Voters, all were for this amendment. But somebody got the blue book to write out that that would be a hindrance because it was what happened would be removing the exception clause could have effects on prison work programs, community service requirements, or probation conditions if the offenders refuse to comply. So they want to take away your right to say no, just as y'all were discussing earlier. And so the counter to that would be like I was saying for here in North Carolina. See, what what the issue is, is not whether or not we can force these people to do community service as recompense for whatever crime they may have been convicted of or or in this deferred prosecution agreement is is that you're paying them slave wages. Pay them the legal wage. Pay them the minimum wage. Nobody's saying if I get caught doing, you know, DUIs or whatnot in my community, hey, I feel like I should be doing community service. But if I'm doing it for a private entity, because some of them do go work for private entities and what have you, or I think if anybody should be work. They should be paid. I mean, we could throw the Bible at them. You know what I'm saying? They claim exactly. to be Christians. You know, hey, if yeah. a man work, he should be paid. So, yeah. I agree. I'm going to drop off, but I just wanted to throw that in because I heard y'all talking. I went on and sent several of the articles to your post on Facebook. All right, yeah. Otis. Well, we appreciate you, man. Be strong. I, I, I love the work, man. All right. Peace to you, bro. Oh, this is a soldier doing a great job spreading the word out there. Very proactive, and I appreciate him greatly. Um, oftentimes, he gives me information that I wouldn't have gotten any in from any other source. So, uh, kudos to you, Otis. Keep doing yeah, that great that's work. A good brother, there. I love to hear from him. Mm-hmm. Well, to what he said, uh, going along, you know, with it as well. I mean, that's the that's the issue in itself is the labor. So they're not going to raise it to a minimum wage labor. I mean, we've reported on this program extensively the hundreds of millions of dollars that the state of California alone is both generating as well as saving itself by not hiring actual firefighters to work in the forest fires, by not hiring actual companies to create products that are sold in the in the open market. We talked about in Massachusetts when they brought in prisoners to work as slaves for the for the city of Boston to clear the, the uh, subway tunnels and clear the tracks and clear the streets. And 
they had put out a call for regular Joe citizens to come out and work and help the city dig out of this this blizzard they had been under. And I believe the rate was somewhere around between thirteen to sixteen dollars an hour. And they have afforded themselves to and then brought in two or three hundred prisoners and paid them a dollar a day. So as long as this is where I can't accept this ignorance claim. Yeah, the average Joe citizen, maybe, you know, our caller, and as he was saying, people that were voting and so forth, this kind of thing, maybe that's something that people can get away with. But we know for a fact that on the legislative level, in the municipalities, on the state level, and obviously on the federal level, where Unicor is a damn near billion dollar yearly contract that makes almost all of the, the goods that we use for our soldiers in 140 conflicts going on around the planet right now. These people know what they're doing. So there's got to be a place where we can be specific about the wording. We could be specific about the legislation that we're attacking. We can create enough a, a body of information based off this anecdotal evidence to come up with something. But what we're dealing with is the slave train is rolling on. And that slave labor is not about to be minimum wage paid. It has to be ended because they're not going to meet us in the middle. I would suspect something like a prisoner's bill of rights needs to be drafted. Uh, didn't Free Alabama Movement do that? I think that that's exactly what they did. We'll have to look through it in more detail and share it with our listeners so they can look through it as well. Well, how about if we... Uh, get into this other story because I really want to break this down uh, the thing from the ASA uh, American Studies Association and as I said for me it was an example of that racism by omission uh, this is why the Democrats lost because they are completely out of touch uh, with in America today and they, frankly I don't think they give a damn to begin with uh, I'm going to read this verbatim for everybody to hear uh, it's a post that w went out in regards to submissions, and it came from Jenny uh, Kelly 22 hours ago, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, election, not election, 2016. At our recent national conference, the American Studies Association held a panel discussion to assess the 2016 election results. Panelists focused on issues of neoliberalism and nationalism, class and race, gender, sexuality, and sexual violence, xenophobia, Islamophobia, white supremacy, environmental catastrophe, and much else affected in the context of this election. Participants included Lisa Dugan, uh, Lisa Dugan from NYU, uh, Kisanga Yamata Taylor of Princeton, and uh, Musafa Wyomi of CUNY. It was chaired by Joe Ann Parker, SFSU, as a follow-up to that panel, we are reaching out to the ASA members to create ongoing discussions, analysis, and action plans. And then they gave a call for submissions. We invite scholars within the American Studies Association to submit 1,000-word essays or 5- to 30-minute video logs or podcasts that provide historical analysis, syllable, uh, syllabi outlines, teaching plans or tactical designs that address the multiple issues involved in the 2016 presidential election. The jumping would not limit it to. And this is the part where it really shows where their priorities are, uh, what's listed and what's not listed. 
starting with the future of racial capitalism, neoliberalism, and the war economy. Second, Islamophobia. Uh, after that, anti-immigration detention and deport deportation, sanctuary spaces, the violence of the police, military, and surveillance state, anti-Native American and indigenous sovereignty and territorial rights, trade and energy development, health care, LGBTQ issues, reproductive rights, rape culture, sex violence, misogyny, election, uh, election effect, hate crimes, white supremacy, polling and the profession of political consulting, environmental catastrophe, global politics, the future of mainstream party, and the possibility for third parties, and lastly, priorities for social movements in the wake of Trump apocalypse, and yes, they called it Trump apocalypse. We will create sites for print and video posts and inaugurate the project as the initial round of submissions as they come in. We will continue to post on a regular basis over the coming year as submissions accumulate. And then they give you the email to send this in uh, to. Did you notice that at no point in there was even the misnomer mass incarceration? It's just it's like it didn't in, in, exist in their mind when they put this planning thing together. So the uh, over-incarceration of people, what we call slavery, rightfully so, is just not a part of this conversation. Yeah, one of the Amazing. things I picked up on, how you going to talk about Trump and immigration and increased deportations when a big part of that immigration discussion should be prison slavery? Again, right. uh, just like how we talked about how many of these black organizations and intellectuals and whatnot, it just slavery just isn't registering with them. Uh, cognitive dissonance, as some people have called it. But I want to say the same thing about the quote unquote Hispanic community. I mean, they have their organizations, La Raza and others as well, the Association of Hispanic Businessmen and, and all these different other groups. But they don't ever talk about slavery, even though not even private prisons. I haven't really heard them. Have we heard some individual Hispanic grassroots activists speak out against it? For sure, for sure. Many of them are part of the, have staged prison strikes of their own as we have reported over the years. In Colorado, also, there was a prison strike at one of these quote-unquote immigration detention facility. So what I'm, I'm, the silver lining, if if I could even use that word in describing what has been announced as Trump's immigration policy, which he stated would include throwing a bunch of people in the prison. And um, so you would think I, the silver lining would be is as these private prisons, I expect more to be built. If they really seriously talking about going after two to three million people, throwing them in jail, if they don't deport them or what, they're going to have to build prisons. And I, I, I just want to know, is that going to wake up Hispanic people as a voting block, as a, as a group in this country with some kind of economic and political power, is that going to turn them into abolitionists and get them talking about it? So again, I'm not talking about, I'm not pointing out anyone, I'm pointing out everyone. Well, I found the post um, early this morning 
is I was actually looking at some information uh, pertaining to a sister that I've just recently uh, friended on Facebook, uh, Kianka Yamada Taylor, the sister that was on the 13th um, and represents uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, I believe she's a Princeton or Harvard. She's either Princeton or Harvard professor. And, you know, I mean, another one that's in this line. And I was just looking at information on her page and just trying to kind of get familiar with what she's talking about in her personal space and whatnot. And I came across that post. And then I saw other people tagged in it that I'm friends with as well. Uh, Dan Berger being another one, someone whose book I've uh, read and studied, uh, The Struggle Within, Prisons, Political Prisoners, and Mass Movements in the United States. So here's someone that's a scholar. He's also a a professor and an author and, uh, you know, well-affiliated with. He's got uh, the foreword of his book is written by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, someone who's also written about the prison and, and even mentioned slavery in, in her work. Uh, Angela Davis is affiliated with his works. I mean, for these people that are in the 13th, these people that are writing these books, these people that are in these groups, and as you heard in the post when Max was first reading it, it says it's from American Studies Association, and they're saying that if you are a member, then you know submit your work. If you want to do a five to 30 minute video or a podcast, or if you've got a thousand word essay, you know, we're inviting scholars who are within the American Studies Association to submit this work um, and then help us, you know, make a response to all of these topics that were named off. So this is the problem. Again, these are the people that represent what we're talking about. This is not just me ranting on this soapbox saying, oh, they won't call us back. They won't come on the show. They won't talk to us about slavery. They want this. They want that year in, year out. The people they're talking to, they're not talking about it either. They're putting on the it's the wolf in sheep's clothing at this point. They're putting on the sheep suit and walking around like, you know, oh yeah, I know all about it and it's a problem. We got to change. But they get every opportunity to discuss it and we're seeing in their own world, in their own circles, they're not discussing it. So it doesn't I mean, exist in their, in their mind. Yeah, this is ridiculous. Like you said with the, with the mentioning immigration, how are you going to talk about anti-immigration detention and deportation sanctuary spaces and not even say mass incarceration? The federal uh, the federal courts had some 400,000 cases in 2015 before them of for immigration cases. They are by far the most prevalent cases in our federal court system right now for the last several years are federal cases for immigration uh, deportation cases. All of these people who are waiting on their cases to go through the court system are being detained. And while they're being detained, they're being enslaved. They're being forced to do prison labor for slave wages. We saw the the uprising in Wallace County uh, down in Texas. We saw a, a prison that by... Uh, that was when it was created was created for only 800 people and when they got a contract through DHS and ICE to detain people they put up 10 tents literal T-E-N-T tents 10 tents with 20 beds cots spread out in tents each or 200 rather beds under these tents each and added 2,000 beds so they could go from 800 to 2,800 and then even then pushed it over the maximum capacity of that 2,800 all detaining so-called illegal immigrants 
And they even caught that prison going across the border in marked prison vehicles with uniform-wearing employees bringing people back across the border and then seeing to it that they were getting arrested and then putting them right into their prison system. Damn it, if this is not something that someone that has a, a, a damn national forum I mean, just I'm just going to calm down because I'm getting pissed off about it ain't about to change it. People yeah, just understand, this is a system, man. How in the world do you have a platform? How are you in your academic circle with all your friends and all your people that you trust? These are the people you know and you believe in their education just like your education and they rub each other on the back and you go to each other's weddings and you play golf with each other and you go to church with each other and you send cars to each other and you hang out with each other and all this other stuff you do. You all in this bubble, just like our caller said earlier, you just kind of in a bubble. It's a whole lot of goddamn bubbles that need to get popped because people are being enslaved. And while they're enslaving those people, they're going out and actively bringing in more people. And if you don't come in willingly, we'll kill you in the street, just like what was happening on this planet in 1500. Do you think all the people that got enslaved and ended up in the colonies and ended up in America just willingly got on the boat and just went on? If they could talk about 150 million that got here and talk about another 20 or 30 million that died on the way here, it's probably 100 million that died right there on the spot. This is still happening right now. This country will, will execute well over 1,000 citizens this year again that was people that chose to not be apprehended. This country has at least 3 to 5% of 2.5 million people incarcerated who are wrongfully accused, arrested, and incarcerated. If we've got over 100,000 people in prisons who are innocent, there should be a national a coup pool to get these people out. Right. We sit up here congratulating Castro and arguing over if Castro was, was bad or good. I don't give a damn what Castro was doing in Cuba, honestly. I'm trying to figure out what's going on right here in America. That right there is the problem, Johanna, with the Democratic Party uh, being in this bubble. Their priorities are the white majority's priorities. They don't give a damn what's really happening to minorities, and they're not listening. No, They don't want to hear it. It's not part of their conversation. <clears throat> so what we're left with in this so-called democracy is at the sympathy or the mercy of the people who are in power hoping they hear us begging them to please stop. Because we don't have any real representation. When you're talking about the uh, American Studies Association, doesn't even include the incarceration of United States citizens as part of their agenda to look at, to say, well, maybe we screwed up on this regarding the election. This might be the problem. It's not even a part of their, their mindset. It doesn't exist in their mind. But LGBTQ exists in their mind. Immigration yeah. exists in their mind. Islamophobia exists in their mind. All of these things are there, and we get white supremacy. That's what we fall into now. It's one category that just is a potpourri for everything. It's this abstract thing called white supremacy, which at the face of its own terminology is delusional. There is nothing supreme about being white. <laughs> so you said delusional. Really, yeah. Yeah. You say delusional. Let me point this out for people because maybe they, they're not seeing what's about to happen. Okay, we had Ronald Reagan, went to George Bush. So you created a, a, a large group of, of super conservative, you know, white power, whatever kind of country here in America. And then when Clinton comes in, all these liberal people that are supposed to be our allies now that we supposedly set up for crying with because Hillary didn't get in right now, all those people 
rallied around Bill Clinton in 92. But they couldn't just rally around Bill Clinton and assure that they'd get him in office. If you look at history, you can see what's going to happen in the next election. They rallied around Clinton, but Clinton had to prove that he was tougher on the Negroes than Bush was going to be. Clinton couldn't get in until he could prove to those outlying voters, those people that came out the woodwork and voted and put Trump in, he couldn't get in until he stopped his campaign and went and, and went and executed a mentally retarded black man who, with his last meal that he ordered, said he was going to save his dessert till he came back. So that's just letting you know what America is about. The president that people elected went and watched this man get fried. He was that mentally retarded. He had to come up with all of these promises about what he would do to handle the crime problem. These Negroes, law and order. See, it's not that they just amassed themselves and got behind the Democratic president and put him in office. They had to get behind somebody and they had to promise that they would handle. And you see what happened. He put more people in prison than any other president in history. He had a million people he put in prison in his first term. So that's what you're looking forward to now. If you don't like Trump and you want to keep crying and you want to try to get him out and all this stuff you want to do, he's not going anywhere. So for the next four years, what you're only going to be able to do is raise up a candidate whose only option is going to say, okay, I'll be the Democratic president for you guys, but I'm going to have to be tougher on crime than even Trump. I'm going to have to be more extreme than Trump is to get in because those people are not going to vote for him until they feel at peace. What you need to do is get behind a solid platform like ending slavery and actually being for freedom and actually being for justice. You need to stop playing this liberal game and thinking that your friends are going to be on your side and everybody's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. They're going to continue to prey on you and your people and live off the extras that they get as a result of investing in slavery, and you're going to continue to be on the bottom. Indeed. And we need to make uh, whoever it is we're putting this on this platform, need to appeal to the people who are uh, ranked among those who are impoverished. That's 150 million strong who for some unknown reason this election season was completely forgotten and everybody focused on the middle class. But when it comes to voting, every citizen can vote. Every citizen. Not just the middle class. So when you're excluding 150 million Americans from your argument, you're excluding a huge voting block. But if you appeal to them with something that they can relate to, like ending slavery and human trafficking because so many of their family members are involved in it, I'm sure you can make a movement to get these people out and have them voting for you. Well, we're coming up on the top of the, uh, the half hour mark in our break time. We're going to take a quick station identification. When we come back, we're going to uh, get into our next story and then into our regularly scheduled segment. So you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> The Black Talk Media Project funds the use of new media technology in efforts to restore independent black voices to the myriad of issues affecting Afro-descendant people all over the planet. If media can control the minds of the masses, as Malcolm X once said, then you must ask yourself, who is in control of the media targeting the masses of black people today? 
help bring back independence, self-determination, and respect for black culture in the production of global media by joining the effort to crowdfund new black media for the new millennium. Visit blacktalkmediaproject.org for more information on how you can invest in public black radio for the masses. You are tuned in to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, broadcasting every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Black Talk Radio Network. You have a question or a comment in our final 20 minutes of the night, please don't hesitate to give us a call at 866-510-9025. That's 866-510-9025. And now back to New Abolitionist Radio. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, we have a few stories in line, so we're going to have to make some choices now about how we want to do things. I, I did want to talk about the thesis of the three spheres of slavery, but I think I can do that briefly, and we can also cover things like this over time. And the other article that I found with the question, Is Slavery Legal in America? It's an extensive article. I wouldn't mind reading some of it and maybe put doing it in two parts. So maybe next week we can read the rest of it because it was extremely insightful and it was very much ahead of its time because this was back in 2010 that this came out. Uh, and I would certainly like for our listeners to take a look at it and read through it because he touched on some things that we have overlooked here at New Abolitionist Radio and uh, certainly wanted to go through that. But also I want to give an update as well uh, on legal proceedings that are going on here in the South in regards to police murders. Uh, we just had the circumstance where uh, the DA announced the cop who shot Keith Scott will walk free. Johanna, would you like to cover that uh, story for us? Uh, I have to just run downstairs real quick. If you can handle that, would be great. <clears throat> yep, no charges. I mean, it's uh not hard to not hard to cover that one. Unfortunately, this is oh, Lord. I'm still simmering down from from this last. Year. So we we saw what has become clearly the uh, the trend of snuff films, as we call them here, that has gone on for years now. And I think everybody's up to speed now and knowing that that's how it's going to be delivered to you now, whether it's by body camera or um, if it's by dash cam or somebody's sitting right there next to the person like uh, Philando Castile and can show the whole thing, you know, as it's going down right there with the kid in the car. This is another one where, um, where the, uh, we saw what happened. And, um, yeah, somehow, some way. I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from, Scotty. Again, to relate this back to the uh, story we were talking about earlier about Colorado and just in an overall sense how to relate this information to um, to the legislature with the proper language which because the issue with these types of stories is that it's a language issue, it's the law that's already in place that they've already made it to where it's basically impossible to to prosecute these people so it's not that we don't have the power as citizens to change the laws, to change the, the language. But once again, we've got to get serious 
about where we're going to confront these people. Are we going to play some shadow war where our proximity from them is so far and away from one another that they can tell us what we're doing is it was working, but actually in practice on down the road somewhere else, it's not working and we just steady spinning our wheels and we feel like we're comforting ourselves somehow? Or are we going to get close right up and personal to what's going on and be like, look, this ain't going to work. Don't even try it. We need these new laws and then let the unions come out and resist us. Let these uh, factions of our government come out and resist us. These people that are benefiting from it come out and show who they are. I think that's the, the wiser way to go about doing it is to just let the battle be where it literally is as opposed to keeping on believing that you can put the burden on a uh, district attorney. Like we left uh, Sister Mosby hanging up there in Baltimore when she went for it. You know, she did the best she could, but where was her political support? As in her, the voters in that area requiring the laws to reflect the way that she actually could. So you got a man that was murdered in Freddie Gray that nobody murdered him. So uh, from North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, says uh, protesters took to the streets and hold on one second here. I got to make sure I don't get a audio on this because our new platform, I think, lets the audio in that comes through my screen as well. Um, says protesters took to the streets of downtown Charlotte, North Carolina on Wednesday night to show their disappointment with the decision to not charge an officer in the shooting death of a black man. A two month investigation determined that Charlotte Mecklenburg police officer Brentley Vinson was justified in shooting Keith Lamont Scott in an apartment complex parking lot. Mecklenburg County District Attorney Andrew Murray said he didn't reach the conclusions alone. A total of 15 prosecutors unanimously agreed with the decision. Hey, man, it was, everybody said it. Shit, he had to do it. The killing led to heated protests and divided the city of Charlotte. Compared to previous demonstrations over Scott's death, a smaller crowd, tur crowd turned out Wednesday night, only about 100 people. At least, I mean, this is just layered. The language is just layered with just smacks in the face and insults I mean Jesus at least four people were arrested as police tried to corral protesters off the streets three of them were for obstructing protesters message was the same as before stop killing black people some of the protesters t-shirts read how to get away with murder become a, a cop said some of the signs if we don't get no justice then you don't get no peace they chanted <laughs> I mean can you hear this I, I hate to be going off and I'm just going to use it the best I can if you don't if we don't get no justice and you don't get no peace they chanted like that's the extent of it oh man anyway setting the record straight in his hour long announcement the uh, district attorney rejected a series of erroneous claims quote unquote made shortly after the shooting he said those narratives fueled widespread happened among them Scott's relative said he didn't have a gun but all the credible evidence quote unquote led to a conclusion that Scott was armed he said Scott's DNA was on the grip of a gun found at the scene Murray also said at least three officers reported being shot though dash cam video didn't show that much detail shortly before the shooting Scott visited a local convenience store their surveillance video showed a bulge around his ankle that was consistent with the holster and a gun that was later described by officers so in the photo they've got this circled out picture of his pant leg hiked up with a uh, one woman initially said a white officer killed Scott at the apartment complex a, a narrative later echoed by protesters but that woman told investigators she didn't actually see the shooting Murray said Vincent who was black was the only officer who shot Scott he said an analysis of the other officer's gun showed those guns were fully loaded while Vincent's gun was missing several bullets after the shooting Scott's daughter posted a video on Facebook live saying her father was in his car reading a book 
but the daughter also did not witness the shooting and no book was found at the scene, Murray said. The prosecutor said that officers told Scott at least 10 times to drop his weapon before Vincent opened fire. Murray said that while criminal charges are not appropriate, I know some are going to be frustrated. Hmm. He said he met with Scott's family Wednesday morning to tell them about his decision and said the family was extremely gracious. They probably held hands with him said a prayer saying kumbaya and said they forgive everybody involved because that's what Negroes do. Scott's family attorney said that our work is not over. So there you go. There you go. I mean, I wish I didn't sound as cynical as I feel. I wish it was not uh, as well warranted. I wish I was out of line for thinking the things I think and feeling the way I feel about what goes on with all of these deaths, extrajudicial murder, um, police found a gun and claimed that his DNA was on the on the handle of it so you know they didn't even have to argue anything else I mean in these cases the breakdown is so is so vast the different ways they can dismantle the argument that the person should not have been murdered I mean each time you see that they're willing to open up the, the box and, and just use whatever tools in there to disprove any kind of guilt, any kind of blame for several police officers. He did. They never said that he pointed a gun at anybody. They never said he threatened anyone. They never said he tried to run. He shot anything. He did anything. They were able to show that he had a, they were able to tell us that he had a gun holster on his ankle and had a gun registered. So whatever gun he had, if it was registered and he had enough uh, care about it to keep a holster and, and whatever, I mean, I'm sure his DNA would be on the gun. I got my DNA on my fishing pole. I use it sometimes. That don't mean I'm going out and wielding it in front of police. I mean, there's so many holes in their stories all the time, but once they give the official statement, they don't need to do anything else because you're going to have people come out just like Michael Brown and everybody else and say, well, hey, man, that's what the police said. Hey, that's that's what the, what, what now the DA is lying? The police are lying? But when we come back with Justice Department reports next year that will show all this was a lie, well, the Justice Department is a fake, man. You can't believe what they say. Mm. So this is what I'm talking about. This is why mm. I get frustrated, and I don't really care about playing like we've got allies, pretending like people are going to just do the right thing. If we, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe this is 1850. I believe this is <laughs> 1793. I believe this is 1872. I believe this is the times when people needed something to happen right then and there. And you knew if that was your ally, whether they let you in your in their house or not and hid you in their attic. You didn't know they was your ally because they saw you in the store and just didn't try to beat you up, didn't try to kill you or turn you in. I need to know you're an ally because you're willing to do something to sacrifice your own situation. That's the only allies I have, is people that are willing to do something to sacrifice their own situation. So, sad story, brother's dead. Won't be no justice in this one either from what we see. Yeah, um, sadly, this was expected. I didn't expect them to file any charges. And, you know, we all, I'm not going to say all of us, but the video was available and I watched the video and I felt in the very least that the officer was guilty of manslaughter. I mean, there's even some question as to whether the black cop is the one who gunned them down from what I saw in the video. I mean... It, <laughs> So you know, yeah, it's all shady, man. It's yeah. all shady. And so I'm I'm questioning if he was the only one that shot also. So but 
in the very least, given what we know in terms that the reason they was there to serve of a warrant to arrest somebody else. And so one of these undercover, these were undercover people, right? And so one of them going to uh, say, oh, I, I saw this man in this truck and he was rolling up marijuana. So let me leave my post because that's what they did. Let me leave mm-hmm. my post and not try to apprehend the person we actually have a warrant from for. I'm going to go see about this man smoking some weed, even though cannabis has been decriminalized and at the most we'll give him a ticket. You know, it's worth me blowing my cover just so I can go stop this man from smoking weed. You know what I'm saying? So at the very least, in my opinion, man, there was a lot of, um, I would just simply, I could argue for manslaughter in the very least. Yeah, we'll say murder. No, he didn't plan to go out there and murder that man that day. We can't prove that. Who knows? Maybe every day all of them wake up hoping to kill somebody. Let me just get one. You know what I'm saying? And they want to see some action like Timothy Lohman's father said he wanted to see after he got fired, uh, you know, from uh, that one department before he ended up in Cleveland and ultimately killing Tamir Rice. You know, he wanted to, his father said he wanted some action. He wants to see some action. So we can't, I, I don't think the evidence could, we could prove, you know, first degree murder, maybe not even second degree murder, but in the very least manslaughter. I felt they were very reckless, them leaving their post, violating protocol and procedures. Um, I, I could have came up with, with you know, reckless endangerment of the public. I, I could have came. We know how these prosecutors get creative in piling on charges on people just so that they will agree to plead out and not go to trial and, and just accept a plea deal. So they could have found charges. But again, I am not surprised at the outcome. No, no. This is uh, directly from... Okay. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know if you was back with us. Yeah, I'm back. Uh, until slavery ends, there can be no expectations of justice. No. If they're getting away with slavery, they're going to get away with murder. It's really just that simple. That simple. And see, slavery is the ultimate, the ultimate measure of someone's criminality. If you can enslave a person, that's even beyond saying you could put a person just in jail. Because if you put somebody in jail, that's saying that person agrees that they broke a law, so now they got to pay a penalty. When you can enslave a person, you're saying that's just a criminal. And as I talked about before, this is going all the way back to the 1400s and the papal bulls where they were saying the Roman Catholic Church does not recognize your country as being affiliated with this church or this faith. And by order of God, we could take your land, your resources, kill you and enslave you, rape you, do whatever we want to do. We're still living under that. White supremacy clearly is the most savage organization, civilization, whatever you want to call it, societal simulacra on the planet. And because they kill the most people, we got 140 different wars and conflicts that America itself is engaged in around this planet right now. Go to Google and check and see if I'm lying. We are dropping bombs and killing and shooting and torturing and doing whatever to people all over this planet. But as long as you don't want to confront these types of things, what you do is call Native American savages. What you do is call Negro savage. You set up court systems where it's 95% white males are the prosecutors and the judges and the clerks and the people that's officiating and administrating. 
and you put these people juxtapose them against one another and you show these black faces and these brown brown faces and you implicate just by the nature of the setup that these are people who don't have morals these are people who must be criminals because look at all the white people and where they're at. They're in positions of power and officiation. They're officiating what's going on. And look at all these brown and black people. They're here because they broke, they're so immoral that they're criminal. They're not just without morals. They're so bad, they're criminals. So as long as you're a criminal, we can quit. We don't have to look at the criminality of the system itself. This is Dr. Amos Wilson 101. Right. If I can call you a criminal, then I can treat you criminally. I don't owe you justice. In fact, shooting you in the street is justice. We already know you're a criminal, so why should we bother with taking you to trial? This is where we call it extrajudicial murder. You don't need a, a judge. You don't need to go to court. They tell you if a cop stop you and arrest you, just go with it and let them work it out in court. They say, we ain't gonna take you to court. We'll just kill you here. Right. Well, guys, we only have like seven minutes um, left in the broadcast. Sure. If we want to hit them two segments, we got right. the Lotus Place coming well, up. Let's, let's do it like this. As far as the discussion on the thesis of the three spheres of slavery, we'll carry that into next week as well. Um, we just, uh, I just want to point out that I think that their weakness in their argument is and has been the period between 1865 and 1928 called convict leasing. That is something that they never really mentioned in their arguments of slavery uh, and comparison. So we have that there. We'll continue that next week. I did want to read just this one part of the article that I found from Clint Richardson. All right. Well, we we will have to skip um, a couple of the other segments like the abolitionists in profile. We'll we'll do our abolitionists in profile and we'll skip our writer this week. And we'll put the writer on our Facebook page so people can go ahead and take a look at them. And that'll save us some time. Just really quick through this part of the article so you can see where we're coming from, and we'll go into this again next week. It says, look, the politicians, courts, attorneys, lawyers, judges, and anyone else involved in this legalized human trafficking and slavery are not acting in the best interests of the people. They are simply compartmentalizing cronies, each contributing to a shameful slave and private prison business. And the court system is set up to ensure a constant influx of new slaves. What is even more disheartening is the fact that the majority of people subjected to this legalized slavery are not guilty of breaking the law, meaning they have done harm they, they have done harm to others or their property. No, these state inducted slaves are guilty of victimless crimes, meaning that no one of their property or their property was hurt. This means that the state is the victim. This means that a code limits statute or other nonsensical legality, not law, was broken. This means that the government has set up a system in which it imprisons and enslaves good and innocent people for breaking its outrageous rules. This means that for running a red light, you could become a slave too. This means that for holding up a sign in protest, you could become an involuntary servant to to the government. That's from Clint Richardson reality blogger wordpress.com check it out on new abolitionist radio um i guess we're going to uh go right into our next and final segment for, uh, which would be our abolitionist in profile and this week it is john brown read his story read by none other than mumia abu jamal and uh scotty if you want to cue that up right there it's on both pages 
The John Brown We Don't Want to Know. Mention the name John Brown today, and for those who know it, it resonates like an echo in the mind. And yet, what we think we know dispatches his dim memory to the margins. For John Brown brings with it a plethora of negative connotations. Religious zealot, killer, madman, maniac, and to some traitor. Even the best historians find it hard to depart from these time-worn themes. And even while he lived, supporters called him prophet, seer, sage, and liberator. And while this is certainly better than his mainstream detractors, neither is exactly accurate. Few tell of John Brown's participation in a movement of freedom fighters, or of Brown's attendance at the Chatham Convention in 1858 in Canada, or of what a group of black freedmen and escaped slaves decided in that convention when they organized a provisional government of a new United States of America, where all men were free and the tyranny of slavery was abolished forever. These members of the Chatham Convention swore an oath to secrecy, and together, in May 1858, they wrote, amended, and adopted a provisional constitution and also a declaration of liberty. Although based on the founding documents of the United States, they differed considerably, for they based their documents on freedom, not slavery. This was a constitution not of slave traders or slaveholders, but of the prescribed and oppressed people, their words, of the United States of America. John Brown was elected commander-in-chief of the army. The point? John Brown was part of a black revolutionary movement designed to remake the entire U.S. into a place of freedom, not bondage. When he and his men were captured in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, now West Virginia, these and other documents were in his possession, among them the Declaration of Liberty, which proclaimed of the U.S. under the slave power of southern states, when any set of usurpers, tribe, or community failed to protect the right, but furnished protection and encouragement to the villain by bestowing a bounty or premium upon the vile thief, robber, libertine, pirate, and woman-killing slaveholder as a reward for their deeds of rascality and barbarism. They have transcended their own limits. They have fairly outwitted themselves. Their slave code is a shame to any nation. Their laws are no laws. They themselves are no more than a band of base piratical rulers. They are a curse to themselves a most lamentable blot upon society. Some 16 months later, Brown, with about two dozen men, hit the armory at Harper's Ferry, trying to seize weapons and spark a slave revolt in the Upper South. One of the men with him was Osborne Anderson, who was elected to Congress of the Provisional Government in Chatham, Canada, and one of the few men to escape Harper's Ferry and live to tell the tale. The papers found in John Brown's satchel give us all a deeper view of the man, the movement of which he was an important part, and the hunger for freedom among millions of people, black and white, slave and free. To make him a madman is to dismiss him. To make him a saint is to distance him. To remember the man and the movement is to make him human and the age almost understandable. 
from death row. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are produced by Noel Hanrahan for Prison Radio. Salute. You've been listening to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, closing statements, fellas, and then we're out. Um, again, I want to um, thank uh, Jimmy Thomas for joining us today and sharing that news about the failure of Amendment T. But again, as I stated, I see that as an empty glass that is now half full to even get it on the ballot and put it to a vote. And I'm just hoping uh, that it will be successful in passing if it's put on the ballot again. And it serves as inspiration for activists and abolitionists, I should say, in other states that allow people to put things on the ballot initiative. So thanks again, uh, Mr. Thomas. Um, and glad to have you part of the abolitionist movement in slavery. Uh, looks like we lost Johanna. I think uh, we both know what Johanna would say. <laughs> Peace to the abolitionists, Deputy President. Uh, I just want to keep it real simple. Like Scotty said, slavery ain't going to end itself. You got to get out there and make this a part of the conversation. Don't let them just run their mouths without including this in the conversation. If you're in the audience, if you're in anywhere around this type of discussion, make it a part of the conversation. End slavery. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, and my final words will be this. Remember, abolition is the reason for revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn.